Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, terrorism, poisoning, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's the fall of 2001. 73-year-old Ernesto Blanco lies in a hospital bed in Miami. The news plays on the TV, but he can't really pay attention. He's too weak, too confused to even know what day it is. Confused seems to be the buzzword. His entire illness is confusing. Just over a week ago, he was working in the Boca Raton American media offices, pushing his mail cart and chatting with co-workers. Then he started feeling tired, kind of like the flu. By that night, he was so dizzy and exhausted, he checked himself into the hospital. Now, here he is. He's lost 16 pounds in 14 days. Blood and fluid fill his lungs. When he is able to pay attention to the news, reporters tell him at least three other people have been killed by the same symptoms he has. He can't help but think he's next. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're exploring the 2001 anthrax attacks from late September to November 2001, just after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Letters containing deadly powder were sent across America's East Coast. Authorities spent the next seven years hunting down the culprit, using everything from computer records, security cameras, and genetic testing in the hopes of finding the truth. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The attacks that rained death and destruction on New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania also callously ripped away the sense of safety Americans carried with them. The notion that ours is an invincible nation has been shattered, along with the World Trade Center towers and parts of the Pentagon. And Senator Charles Hagel says America is forever changed. America is in for a long fight. Jackie Bashara, Washington. September 11th, 2001 is an infamous date to most Americans, myself included. It's the day 19 terrorists hijacked four commercial airplanes in an orchestrated attack on the United States. In my case, I was living in New York at the time, but out of town, so I was actually on a plane back to New York uh, when the attacks happened. So uh, my plane was grounded, and then I spent the next few days on the phone with my fiance, who was on the rooftop of our place in Brooklyn, watching the towers come down and calling friends to find out who'd been inside. It was uh, a very tense and terrifying time for everybody. And not just because it was so sudden, but because of what it represented. It was the first time a lot of Americans realized danger and violence could happen anywhere. We all hoped that feeling of unease would pass. Then 
came the anthrax attacks. In the weeks after September 11th, newsrooms across the country are abuzz, reporting every development. The work is constant. Reporters are exhausted, anchors are hoarse. Everyone is trying to make sense of what happened. Maureen Stevens knows this better than most. Her husband, Robert, is a photo editor for The Sun, a tabloid in Boca Raton, Florida. It's a subsidiary of American Media Incorporated. Ever since the attacks on the Twin Towers, things at the office have been incredibly hectic. Bob had to stay late at the office last night, even though they needed to get on the road early this morning. Right now, they're on their way from Florida to Charlotte, North Carolina to visit their daughter. It's a long drive, 10 hours, but it's good for Bob to get out of the office. They reach Charlotte by Friday, September 28th, and pick up their daughter. Then they hit the road again on Saturday, heading to Chimney Rock State Park for some hiking. Maureen notices Bob seems tired, which isn't necessarily surprising. He's been working hard, and he's 63. Hiking isn't as easy as it used to be. But her concern grows that night, when Bob skips dinner and goes to bed early. The next day is Sunday, and Bob still isn't feeling great. He has chills, exhaustion, and nausea. Even so, Bob drives them all the way home the next day. When they get back to Florida that night, Bob's fever has gone up. He seems disoriented. Really early in the morning, basically the middle of the night, he jolts awake and throws up. Maureen decides to take him to the hospital. At 2 a.m., Maureen drops Bob off at the ER. She heads home for a few hours and returns at 8 a.m. She's likely expecting to get some answers about what's going on. But what she learns is shocking. While Maureen was gone, Bob had a seizure and fell into a coma. The hospital has no idea what's wrong with him. They're concerned about how fast his health declined. According to David Willman's book, The Mirage Man, Five hours after Bob is admitted, his organs have shut down, his lymph nodes are swollen, and CT scans show his chest is inflamed. There's some talk of meningitis or pneumonia, which can both cause fever, confusion, and vomiting, but those diagnoses don't quite fit Bob's symptoms. The hospital enlists an infectious disease specialist, Dr. Larry M. Bush, to help make sense of it all. Bush examines the scans and draws cerebrospinal fluid from Bob's spine. That's when he notices something strange. The fluid is cloudy. It definitely shouldn't be. Maureen stands at Bob's bedside, horrified and confused. She spends the rest of the morning pressing doctors for information until she finally goes home to wait for more news. Shortly before 2 p.m., Maureen gets a call from the hospital. They tell her, Bob tested positive for anthrax. Okay, but what exactly is anthrax, you're probably wondering? Uh, to give you a brief overview, anthrax is a disease caused by a bacteria usually found in soil. It's not contagious. Most commonly, it's contracted when the bacteria gets in a cut or wound. 
This causes cutaneous anthrax, which is most often seen in people who work with livestock. It's curable with a survival rate of almost 100% if treated correctly. But there's the more serious inhalational anthrax. It's caused when someone breathes in spores formed by those same bacteria. So the particles causing the disease are the same, but the way they enter the body is different. Some of the initial symptoms of inhalational anthrax can mimic a cold or pneumonia, like developing a cough or breathing problems. But eventually, lesions form on the lungs. The bacteria can spread to the brain and cause lesions there, too. It's a horrible way to die. According to an article in The Atlantic, quote, As their minds disintegrate, victims literally drown in their own fluids. With treatment, inhalational anthrax has a 55% survival rate. Without treatment, almost everyone who contracts it will die. Maureen asks Dr. Bush a hard question. Something along the lines of, is Bob going to survive this? He tells her there's a chance her husband will be okay. But privately, Dr. Bush is probably more worried than he's letting on. Bob Stevens has inhalational anthrax, the more severe form of the disease. And it's incredibly rare. He's the first known case in the U.S. in 25 years, since 1976. There also isn't an obvious place he could have gotten it. He doesn't work with livestock and doesn't live in an area where he'd be exposed to something in the environment. So the first, most pressing question is, where on earth did it come from? A clue comes two days later, when 73-year-old Ernesto Blanco is receiving medical treatment in Miami, Florida. He's also experiencing fatigue and trouble breathing. He soon becomes weak and confused. It feels really similar to Bob. The same symptoms, the quick decline, the severity. And it just so happens that Ernesto distributes mail at the American media offices in Boca Raton. The same place Bob works. He started feeling sick the day after the Stevens family left for vacation. Ernesto is put on a respirator and spends the next few weeks fighting for his life. Tubes work overtime draining fluids from his lungs as he loses weight at an alarming clip. Doctors aren't sure he's going to live. Ernesto isn't sure he's going to live. But eventually, he turns a corner. He improves. Three weeks after he's admitted, he's cleared to go back home. His recovery is amazing to doctors, since inhalational anthrax is often deadly at such a late stage. Not everyone is so lucky. On October 5th, Maureen's worst fears are realized. Her husband, Bob Stevens, dies. It's devastating for his family who are left grief-stricken and baffled. The suddenness is hard to wrap their heads around, especially for Maureen. They were just on a family vacation a few days ago. Bob hiked. He laughed. He drove her home. Now he's gone, and no one can tell her why. The doctors at the hospital are just as confused. So is the Florida Health Department and the infectious disease experts 
and the FBI and the CDC. Because at this point, authorities have heard about Bob's anthrax diagnosis and Ernesto Blanco's symptoms. They're worried. If the anthrax bacteria is lingering somewhere out there, in the environment or in a batch of contaminated animal products, that means more people could come in contact with it. So they need to confirm where the men were exposed. Investigators from the FBI and CDC follow the route Bob took from Florida to North Carolina and back, swabbing whatever surfaces he might have come into contact with. Finally, they descend on the American media offices in Boca Raton. This is the most obvious place to look, considering it's the common link between Ernesto and Bob. Members of a hazmat team get to work gathering samples from all over the office. As soon as they wrap up the next morning, they send the swabs for testing. Two samples from Bob's office test positive for anthrax. They came from his keyboard and mailbox. Ernesto's illness makes more sense now. He's in charge of mail distribution. If he delivered a contaminated letter to Bob, that would explain the anthrax in the mailbox and why both men got sick but no one can find the offending letter. Probably because American media doesn't ship its trash to a landfill where investigators could search for it. It uses an incinerator. That means a key piece of evidence has, quite literally, gone up in flames. One mystery is solved. The investigators know where Bob and Ernesto got sick, but a thousand others remain the most pressing of which is still, how did the spores get there? I'm repeating myself here, but remember, anthrax has appeared in the United States for the first time in 25 years. It killed someone who had no proximity to obvious sources of the bacteria. The most likely scenario is that this anthrax isn't naturally occurring, but rather grown in a lab. It means someone did this on purpose. Still, the government suggests it's an isolated incident. There's no evidence of terrorism, so there isn't a need to worry. But a few days after Bob Stevens dies, a new development proves them wrong. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. An assistant to NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw has contracted a skin form of anthrax after opening a suspicious letter. That's Lauren Freyer, an Associated Press correspondent. It's October 12, 2001, 
and she's breaking the news that there's been another anthrax poisoning in New York. Tom Brokaw's assistant, Aaron O'Connor, opened a letter containing white powder several days earlier. A sore formed on her skin, then turned into a blackened lesion. She goes to the doctor for a biopsy. While waiting for results, O'Connor is given Cipro, an antibiotic that fights anthrax infections. It's a precaution at the time, but it turns out to be a good move. The biopsy comes back positive for cutaneous anthrax. It's terrifying, but O'Connor caught it early, and the cutaneous form of anthrax is highly treatable. She'll be okay. Plus, this time the FBI found the letter that poisoned her, which makes it seem even more likely the anthrax is traveling by mail. But the evidence also makes the situation feel more dire. The envelope O'Connor opened is addressed to Tom Brokaw. It has capitalized letters written at a sloping angle across the front and no return address. Inside is a photocopied piece of paper that says 91101. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. The mention of the date, 9-11, is scary. It suggests the perpetrators of those attacks, the extremist group known as Al-Qaeda, might have something to do with this too. Immediately, it feels like the terror America experienced last month isn't over. When I got back to New York after the attacks, I was taking the subway one day in from Brooklyn to New York, and a woman grabbed my hand as we were going underground. And we held hands the whole way, and she turned to me after and said, I'm sorry, but this is my first time underground since the attacks, and I'm just so scared. And that's what it felt like all throughout New York and the East Coast, that anything at any time could happen. And so this anthrax is now heightening that sensation. And politicians don't necessarily quell these fears. The letter is the only piece of evidence that the two attacks are connected, so without more information, some choose to walk a cautious line. Here's House Minority Leader Richard Gebhardt on whether the anthrax attacks are the work of terrorists. I don't think there's a way to prove that, but I think we all suspect that. I think it's clear that these are people that are both up to no good and people who know what they're doing. It's unsettling not having any answers. But if there's one thing America has figured out how to do in recent weeks, it's continue on to go about our lives even though a dark cloud of uncertainty hangs over us. That's what Grant Leslie is doing. She's an intern on Capitol Hill. Four days after O'Connor tests positive for cutaneous anthrax, Leslie is going to work, ready for her morning duty, sorting Senator Tom Daschle's mail. Daschle is the Senate Majority Leader, so the internship is a big deal for a poli-sci major like Leslie, but she's not going to pretend that uh, sorting the mail is exciting. She gets to it anyway. When she picks up a stack, she takes note of the letter on top. It's thick, with scotch tape on each side. 
The writing on the front is addressed to Senator Daschle, and it's in all caps. A messy, slanted scrawl that looks like it was written by a kid. She checks the return address. It's from a fourth grade class in Franklin Park, New Jersey. She thinks it'll be sweet to read a letter from kids, so she takes a pair of scissors and cuts the top of the envelope. As soon as she does, white powder spills out. It gets all over her hands, her skirt, her feet, on the room's carpet. A cloud floats into the air. Leslie holds the envelope, stunned. She calls out for help. The Capitol Police arrive on the scene. They test the powder with strips they have on hand and confirm that it's anthrax. They call in the FBI, including Agent Scott Stanley. Stanley is a rare bird. He is a federal agent with a degree in biomedical sciences. He's actually vaccinated against anthrax because he's worked with it before. He helped develop the training course for those anthrax testing strips the Capitol Police are using. So he's the guy to have on the scene. When he arrives, he recognizes the smell in the room. It's a very specific scent he remembers from grad school. Culture broth used to grow bacteria. He also sees the positive tests the police are looking at. He says, I think we have a problem here. Leslie's given Cipro immediately, and authorities tell her what symptoms to look out for. She later tests positive for anthrax spores, but because of her quick treatment, she doesn't get sick. The offices are closed down, and a hazmat team floods Capitol Hill. Investigators sweep the area and test employees. According to R. Scott Decker's book recounting the anthrax attacks, the ventilation system and foot traffic have already spread the spores to other buildings. There's a huge swath of contamination. 300 noses are swabbed, and everyone in Dashiell's office is given a three-day supply of Cipro. Of all the anthrax cases so far, this might be the most shocking. It's a direct attack on members of the American government. It behooves all Americans to be careful about letters and packages they receive. Here at the White House, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice says steps are being taken. Like everybody else, we're being very cautious about what we open. Uh, the American people ought to be cautious about what they open. That's Mark Smith, a White House correspondent. As he points out, it's not only the government that has to be careful. All Americans are told to worry about this. And remember, this particular kind of danger is new to most people. Unlike the attacks of September 11th, this threat isn't loud, it doesn't explode. It's quiet, insidious, and deadly. And it has a name. Bioterrorism. The goal of bioterrorism isn't necessarily mass destruction. According to the journal Annals of Internal Medicine, quote, Bioterrorism is better defined as a method chiefly designed to disrupt our way of life and make us acutely aware of our vulnerability. There are few things that make you feel more vulnerable than the potential of getting deadly bacteria delivered to your home. So a lot of people start anxiously checking their mail for suspicious envelopes. 
The day after Grant Leslie opened the letter, an NBC producer's infant son tests positive for cutaneous anthrax. He's treated immediately and survives. On October 18th, a CBS employee and a New Jersey postal worker test positive. Both are mild cases, but the next victims aren't so lucky. A government official says some tests for anthrax at a Washington-area postal facility have come back positive. As AP correspondent Orla Reese reports, the Brentwood Postal Sorting Facility in Washington, D.C. is contaminated. Two of their employees, Joseph P. Kersine Jr. and Thomas L. Morris Jr., die from anthrax. Their deaths are announced on October 23rd. Almost every other day, there's news of another infection. A State Department mailroom staffer on October 26th, another postal worker on October 28th. The deaths don't stop either. AP correspondent Warren Levinson reports. Criminal and medical detectives are puzzling over the anthrax death of Kathy Nguyen, a 61-year-old stockroom worker at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital. The Vietnamese immigrant is New York's first case of inhalation anthrax, but investigators don't know where she breathed in the deadly spores. Then, on November 21st, a 94-year-old Connecticut woman named Adelie Lundgren dies. According to Connecticut epidemiologist Dr. James Hadler, she was exposed probably from cross-contaminated mail that came to her house, a, a very low dose with sort of anthrax spores embedded in the envelope of a piece of bulk mail, and that spores would have been released when she tore the mail in half, which she usually did with her bulk mail. Adelie is the last of five people to perish in the attacks. By the end of November, 22 people have contracted anthrax, the victims span Washington, D.C. and four states, Connecticut, New York, Florida, and New Jersey. According to the Amerithrax summary, around 10,000 people were potentially exposed and 35 mailrooms and postal facilities were contaminated, as were 26 buildings on Capitol Hill. The news is constant. Headlines scream from newsstands, magazine front covers claim to have developments, People whisper about it in coffee shops, in doctors' waiting rooms, at work. They want to know who did this and why. So the authorities are under a lot of pressure to figure that out. The FBI forms the Amerithrax Task Force and breaks the search into different arms, mainly Amerithrax 1 and Amerithrax 2. The second unit handles anything in the investigation that's science-related. The first, anything that isn't. Both branches start with what they have. The letters. Authorities have four anthrax-laced letters. Two are addressed to senators, one to Tom Brokaw, and another to the New York Post. There might have been five if the Florida letter that killed Bob Stevens had been found. The letters to the senators are the only ones with return address. Fourth grade, Greendale School, Franklin Park, New Jersey, 08852. But that school doesn't actually exist. It's a fake address to throw investigators off. Luckily, investigators are able to pinpoint where the letters were actually sent from. A mailbox in Princeton, New Jersey. 
It's good information, but it only helps so much. They still don't know who actually sent the letters, and they can't rely on traditional forensics here. None of the envelopes have fingerprints or hair. There's no saliva, since each one was closed with tape. Plus, it's hard to handle them, seeing as they're contaminated by anthrax. So, Amerithrax 2, the science division, realizes they need to go a different route. They're going to follow genetics, not of a suspect, but of the anthrax itself. Agent Scott Stanley is in Amerithrax 2, and he enlists some experts to help with testing. They determine the anthrax used in the attacks is from a strain called Ames. R. Scott Decker, the author of Recounting the Anthrax Attacks, and an agent working in Amerithrax 2, makes a list of all the labs in the country that handle the Ames strain. There's at least 15. The FBI requests samples from all of them to compare with the anthrax in the envelopes. They're hoping one of those samples, or its mutations, will be a match. If they find the lab, maybe they can find their culprit. Meanwhile, investigators turn to the few researchers who work with Ames for help, like Bruce Ivins, an advisor on anthrax testing with the USAMRID, uh, the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, a lab facility whose research is focused on protection against biological threats. Ivins has worked with anthrax for over 20 years and gives the FBI access to the original Ames isolate for testing purposes. This parent strain is naturally occurring and had been found in a Texas cow during the 1980s. While Amerithrax 2 makes progress on the Ames strain, Amerithrax 1 is working on a profile to narrow down their list of over a thousand suspects. The initial theory that Al-Qaeda is responsible is now on the back burner. According to the Amerithrax summary, investigators aren't able to find evidence that, quote, operatives had access to the type and quality of anthrax pathogen used. The new theory is that the letters references to Allah and 9-11 are attempts to lead investigators down the wrong path, and the real perpetrator is someone acting alone who knows a lot about anthrax and has a microbiology pedigree. Some of their suspects are from abroad, some are domestic, some work at companies in the biopesticide industry. But soon, one man stands out above the rest. His name is Stephen J. Hatfill. The Bureau has gotten multiple calls about Hatfill, and when they look closer, they keep finding reasons he fits the profile. Reasons like, Hatfield worked for the USAMRID for two years, and while he was there, he might have had access to the Ames strain of anthrax. He'd also been in Zimbabwe during an anthrax outbreak and wrote an unpublished book about bioterrorism. While working as a contractor for Science Applications International Corporation, Hatfield applied for a top security clearance to work on CIA projects. His application was rejected after failing the required polygraph test. This happened just six weeks before Bob Stevens died. Two investigators 
That means he has the knowledge and possibly the motive. So far, this evidence isn't anything they can use to directly tie him to the attacks. But then, they get a clue that could change everything. I am appalled at the terrible acts of biological terrorism that have caused death, disease, and havoc in this great country starting last fall. But I am just as appalled that my experience, knowledge, dedication, and service relative to defending the United States against biological warfare has been turned against me in connection with the search for the anthrax killer. That's Stephen Hatfield speaking, proclaiming his innocence. But investigators feel like they've drawn an ace in Hatfield. He filled prescriptions for Cipro in September and October. Both came just two days before the New York and the Capitol Hill attacks, respectively. As I mentioned before, Cipro is an antibiotic for anthrax, so it's suspicious that he's taking it. What makes it even more suspicious is that Hatfield denied taking Cipro during the fall of 2001 in his initial statement. That lie drives the FBI to conduct surveillance and a search of his home. The Attorney General publicly names Hatfield a person of interest in August 2002. But they don't find anything that directly connects Hatfield to the attacks. Plus, no one can prove for certain that he accessed anthrax when he worked at USAMRID. Even the Cipro lead is a dead end. Last fall, Hatfield had sinus surgery. The doctors prescribed him Cipro afterwards to prevent infection. With nothing concrete, authorities are stuck. A year passes, then two. And while the government hasn't closed the case, they don't move forward with convicting Hatfield either. Then, in 2005, there's finally a break. Amerithrax 2 determines the anthrax attacks are likely from a single spore batch of the AIM strain, RMR-1029. Agents determine this particular strain was created and stored in the USAMRID labs. Stephen Hatfield worked there for a period of time. But eventually authorities look into the records for biocontainment suite B3, the room that stores RMR-1029, and find out he never had access. Which means there's no way he could have gotten his hands on the spores. Instead of confirming Hatfield's guilt, this absolves him. For the FBI, it's a frustrating setback. Another year passes with no answers for the country. By 2006, the case boasts some impressive stats. Roughly 53,000 leads, 6,000 subpoenas, 67 searches, 9,000 interviews. In the past five years, entirely new methods of scientific testing have been created, and the boundaries of bioterrorism research have been expanded. But no arrests. And it seems to the public... No new suspects. It's hard for the families of the victims who are clamoring to know why their loved ones are dead. 
Some, like Maureen Stevens, have brought lawsuits against the government, asking them to answer for why this happened. Grant Leslie, who's gone back to work on Capitol Hill, doesn't think answers are coming. She says, quote, I think once things started getting out six months, a year, I just assumed that they had no clue what had happened. It seems exhausting for the task force, too. Some members keep their heads down and continue digging, while others move on. News organizations are critical of the silence. They speculate the case has gone cold, that the killer has gotten away with it. But the Amerithrax task force does have a suspect. They just aren't ready to tell anyone. Early on, Agent Scott Stanley noticed a problem. They'd enlisted a lot of experts on anthrax to help with the investigation. Those scientists provided tests, research, advice, and samples to the FBI. They also let investigators into their facilities, which are adept at producing and testing anthrax spores. The thing is, the same thing that makes someone a good resource in advising on anthrax also makes them a good suspect. That means the very people the FBI have been working with, the ones that they've trusted to guide them to the truth, could be responsible for the murders. When the FBI looked at the records for Suite B3, the ones that absolved Stephen Hatfill, they noticed some strange activity in one of the labs. Someone had been there on nights and weekends, alone, and the timing of these visits was suspicious. According to recounting the anthrax attacks, someone worked three consecutive nights in the lab just before the New York letters were mailed. Then, another three-night stretch just before the Capitol Hill letters were postmarked. That man was Bruce Ivins. I mentioned Bruce Ivins earlier, he works at the USAMRID and spent his life developing vaccines for anthrax. He's written more than 50 publications about it and is an expert in anthrax spore production. He's the one who handed the original AIM strain over to investigators. According to the Amerithrax summary, the FBI determined that strain was under Ivan's, quote, sole and exclusive control. Ivans had been one of many on the Amerithrax suspect list for a while, but now, in 2006, he's risen to the top. The spore matches are a big reason. However, Ivans was also suspected of sending the FBI a set of misleading samples in 2002, which didn't have any genetic variants that would connect him to the powder used in the attacks. Ivan's actually had AIM samples that did have those variants. To investigators, it seems like he purposely withheld them. He has no explanation for this apparent mix-up. And then there are the lab hours. Prior to the fall of 2001, he rarely worked late. So the uptick in activity, especially since it coincides with the attacks, feels like evidence. Ivans has no explanations for this either. And there's more. The four anthrax envelopes had some manufacturing information on the back. 
just a few lines stating the year and that they were made with recycled paper. The sort of thing you probably wouldn't even notice. But the scientists who compared the envelopes found minor printing defects in this text. Because of these defects, they were able to determine the envelopes came from the same pack, which were sold at a post office in Frederick, Maryland, where Bruce Ivins just so happens to have a mailbox. The FBI is really starting to believe this is their guy. That's when they get access to Ivan's computer, which provides them with some unsettling insight into his life. Ivan's uses a litany of aliases in his communications, and his messages reveal a paranoid man who's frustrated with his career and marriage. According to some of his exchanges, he's also been diagnosed with personality disorders, anxiety, depression, and psychosis. He's on a few different psychotropic medications. There's evidence of some unnerving behavior, too, like his fixation on a former female lab tech and a Princeton sorority. It's eye-opening enough for investigators to continue moving forward. On November 1st, 2007, the Amerithrax Task Force searches Ivan's house, cars, and offices in Frederick, Maryland. They uncover a few suspicious items. According to the Amerithrax summary, those include, quote, a large collection of letters that Dr. Ivans had sent to members of Congress and the news media over the previous 20 years, including one sent to NBC News in 1987 at the same address for NBC used on the Brokaw letter. Some of these letters are program proposals, while the letters to Congress members were usually about politics. Ivan's used pseudonyms in most of his correspondence. It's good news for investigators. That's one of the things they were looking for. Addresses to where the letters were sent. They also find some weapons. A few handguns, stun guns, and a taser. Over the next year, more searches are made, interviews are held, and authorities slowly gather more evidence against Ivan's, including a threatening email he wrote to a fellow scientist and a violent outburst during a group therapy session. By 2008, the FBI thinks they have enough to indict Ivan's on five counts of murder with the use of a weapon of mass destruction. The death penalty will be on the table. But on July 29th, they realize they won't be able to charge him. According to the Los Angeles Times, Bruce Ivins died after taking a... Ivins has died after he was told about the impending indictment. Even though authorities identified Ivins as the culprit, his death leaves everyone with a lot of questions. Did he act alone? How exactly did he do this? When did he make this plan? And maybe the most important, why? The FBI's Amerithrax Task Force attempts to answer some of these questions. In 2010, they close the case and release a summary. In it, they conclude that Ivan's, and only Ivan's, was the anthrax mailer. The summary gives the country some closure. It says the danger has passed, 
the perpetrator is dead. And maybe, just maybe, Americans can resume that normalcy that has been disrupted since 9-11. We can move on. But unfortunately, that's not the end of it. In 2011, the National Academy of Sciences releases a review of the science used in the FBI investigation. Their conclusion? The evidence is insufficient. Apparently, the equipment in Ivan's lab wasn't capable of turning liquid anthrax into powder. According to a paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, quote, the laboratory lacked the facilities in 2001 to manufacture the kind of spores found in the letters. Some of Ivan's colleagues at USAMRID also come to his defense, disputing the FBI's timeline and the idea that Ivan's worked with dried anthrax. And it's true. The FBI couldn't prove Ivan's manufactured the dry powder, just that the strains were a match. They also never determined if his handwriting was the same as those on the envelopes, or if he was at the mailbox in Princeton when the letters were mailed. The massive amount of research, documents, interviews, and science should make this all feel clear, but despite a mountain of evidence, we don't really have any concrete answers at all. We don't know for sure who did this. And we don't know why, which is terrible for everyone, but mostly for the families of the victims. Reporter Brian Skoloff discusses this in a briefing. There is a sense of closure among the family members and the victims. However, with that said, there's still sort of this overriding feeling of why. The question of why this man did this will haunt these people for years. For Maureen Stevens, this feels especially true. She wins a settlement from her lawsuit against the government, but she doesn't get what she really wants. As Maureen later says, answers would have been nice. Ivan's death and the two contradictory reports make the whole thing feel like a half measure, a wink at closure, at normalcy. But the truth is, normalcy is probably impossible. The events of 9-11 and the subsequent anthrax attacks changed the United States forever. To this day, we see the repercussions, from stringent airport security to the Department of Homeland Security's BioWatch program designed to detect bioterrorism attacks. This moment of suffocating national anxiety, this loss of innocence, altered the way we think about safety. For many, remembering September 2001 means thinking about a before and an after. Who we were before we understood that security isn't guaranteed. And who we are now that we know better. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the 2001 anthrax attacks, amongst the many sources we used, we found R. Scott Decker's book recounting the anthrax attacks 
Terror, the Amerithrax Task Force, and the evolution of forensics in the FBI, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show is developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Kate Murdoch, edited by Karis Allen and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.